0: My mother believed and my father believed that if I wanted to be president of the United States, I could be, I could be vice president. Former Vice President Joe Biden has been elected president of the United States. It is my greatest honor
1: and privilege
0: to have been your president. We will be back in some form.
1: We are still deeply divided. Public health experts warned this was coming unless more was done, and here we are now.
0: Are you proud of what happened here today? Absolutely.
1: Never before in American history, Has there been an uprising like this? Of the 75 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, I don't know how many today are feeling, dear God, what was I thinking? But I would wager a lot more are thinking, let's carry on this fight. Character matters. It matters. Tell them the truth matters. The 21st century is
0: going to be the American century because we lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That is the history of the journey of America. What a difference two weeks makes from the California recall to the Texas abortion law debacle, it feels like we are back in the times of the moment when I would hang up the phone, Marion, and something unforeseeable would take place in America. We should start with the 20th anniversary of 9-11 this weekend. I spent the last week watching documentaries and reading about that day when a total of 2,996 people were killed in those 9-11 intacks, including 19 terrorist hijackers aboard four planes. And even with all that time that's passed, everything that has happened in between, Marion, it still feels really shocking when you watch it back. Uh, what's Equally as shocking is how many lives have been lost since as a direct consequence and how many actions can be directly linked to that day. Today on Irishman in America, we want to look first at the day itself and then the timeline of events that followed with the person who knows America best and a person who was at ground zero on the day. Marion McKeown, it's great to have you here. Before we get into what happened since, tell us about your experience of that day.
1: Right. And great to be back with you, Charlotte. Yeah. Th- th- my experience of the day was I had been up in Cape Cod for the weekend. I had my younger sister was over. She was on a J1 visa and she was kind of saying, "Could we stay for an extra day? And I said no, because, you know, like back to work, et cetera, et cetera. And I started driving back and there was this feeling of weird foreboding that i can't describe on on monday afternoon and and then i drove into this horrendous storm and it was thunder and lightning and torrential downpours i thought oh my god i'm going to crash this bloody car and i thought you know you think sometimes you you talk yourself into thinking that you've got this weird sensation and anyway we got back to new york at about three or four in the morning and uh, at about 20 past eight or half eight I think it was, I turned on the radio and I heard something at NPR about a plane accident. At the same time, the phone rang and it was my then news editor, Martin Wall, calling from the Sunday Tribune. And we had a very brief chat. And I said, Jan, i to go down there straight away now and see what happened. Neither of us at that point thinking that it was a terrorist attack. And in fact, even with NPR, there was a, a you know, th- th- there was this. The reports are obviously sounded serious, but it was, it was, you know, updated. We'll keep you updated as it happens. So I jumped in a taxi. I had an NYPD. PD media accreditation. So I was waved past 14th Street. They'd already started putting up barriers. Then I didn't get there. Now it's so weird, Charlotte, that in 20 years, how much has changed, and how much more slowly news travelled, and we could get information. Even as journalists, 20 years ago, mm. I had one of those little flip-top mobile phones. You know the little yep. plastic ones. I got into the taxi. I asked the taxi driver, "Will you turn on the radio?" And he said, radio's broken. Nowadays, if you get into a New York taxi, you have a TV in the back. Mm. So you can see the news in real time, basically. like They all have these TV screens now. So um, I there were no smartphones. So by the time I got down and got past 14th Street and down to Canal Street, which isn't far away, it's about eight blocks away, it was about 9.30. And the second plane had already hit. And people were, I could see, as I was driving down in the taxi, that something bigger than I thought was going on, drove past Times Square, everybody was out in Times Square, looking up at the ticker, you know, the, the breaking news ticker service, uh, getting down closer and closer. People were just streaming onto the streets. When I jumped out of the taxi um, near Canal, there were just people running out of buildings and shouting. And, you know, you saw them just holding their faces and sobbing and and. And at that point, I was trying to talk to police officers who were trying to get people out of the area and just the shock and the disbelief. And I've said this to several people, I cannot tell you 20 years later, I know I saw things that were horrible. I remember sort of glimpses and fractions of things. But I find it hard to tell what I saw firsthand in some instances and what I saw on CNN later on that day but I know what I heard because for me somehow the sounds are much more vivid because a they were so deafening and b the shrieks and the the sobs and and all of that was so I I went down I was about a, a Block or two away, nobody thought that the the towers were going to collapse. Even though at this stage, by the time I got there, it was clear it wasn't an accident. It was clear the second plane, the uh, south tower had erupted half of it in a ball of flames. The north tower was just black, black, black smoke all over it. But it was clear that this was no accident. You know that this was something mm-hmm. altogether more serious. And then all I can describe it as it was. A noise that I can't even just so loud and so deafening, and then screams of run, run. And at that point, that was around the point when the South Tower collapsed. Now, the police at that stage were even pushing journalists back, they were pushing us all back and saying, Head, you know, they, they want us to go to the Brooklyn Bridge. So they were pushing people across Fulton Street, Park Row, that way. And by the time I saw You know, we were running. So by the time I got to, I knew that I couldn't go over the Brooklyn Bridge because I knew if I did that the bridges could be closed, I wouldn't get back into Manhattan. So I was explaining to the police who were there, look, I'm a reporter. And so they let me wait near City Hall. Uh, And from there, I saw the second collapse. And, uh, you know, I can't even tell you that just the disbelief and again, the noise But by the Brooklyn Bridge. And this was the bit that I really remember. You had all these people and. I don't want this to sound disrespectful in any way, but there were thousands and thousands of people, and they were covered in this whitish, yellowish, greyish sort of mm. chalk and dust. And some of them were crying, some of them were missing shoes, some of them had briefcases and still had their ties perfectly knotted. It was just, and nobody was talking, nobody was saying anything. Everybody was completely silent. And they formed this exodus, this pr- procession where they walked up the steps of the Brooklyn Bridge, just in front of me, like by the hundreds, and nobody was speaking. And you could see them walking across the Brooklyn Bridge. As I say, just this exodus, And it looked like something from, honestly, the Michael Jackson thriller video came to mind. And, and, you know, even zombie movies, because it was so nothing you could imagine happening in New York, nothing real about it. And, you know, the You couldn't even absorb the horror at that stage because things had happened so fast. I was only, I had to go back to my apartment at around. I was only there for about an hour the first time I went down. Then I had to rush back because I'd been told while I was there the Pentagon had been hit. And we were getting all these snatches of news and nobody knew what was coming next. I got back to my apartment. My little sister was there who was, as I said, on the J1. She was absolutely, like, God love her. Just bewildered and scared, and so then I started doing radio. I, uh, somebody called from RTE. Matt Cooper called then, who was the editor of the Tribune at the time, and he was calling to make sure that I was okay and and that you know there there were three other Tribune reporters who happened to be in New York that week as well. And um, one was Ed Maloney, who who was working from New York. He was a terrific, terrific reputation as as a Northern Ireland correspondent. So we had a great team in New York at the time, and then. Then I went back down again because it was one of those things after I'd done a a couple of bits of radio and I was able to give some information. I knew the bridges had been closed into Manhattan. I knew Manhattan was on lockdown. I knew at that stage we had heard that any planes that were in the air, President Bush had given the order that they could be shot down if they didn't respond. Uh, And that was passenger planes, commercial planes. But just this feeling of, oh, my God, what's going on? And then I went back down again and I went to St. Vincent's Hospital and, and that was I got there at about three in the afternoon, having gone back as close to Grand zero as I could get, which was pretty well sealed off at that stage. And all of the doctors and nurses were standing outside, but there was nobody coming in. And one of them told me they'd had about 40 patients come in in the last hour with some injuries. But people were beginning to realize at that stage there were going to be very few survivors, that anybody who was in the tower when it imploded Literally, the chances of any survivors coming out were were so slim. And then at that point, I think the news had been reported and confirmed by the mayor's press office that Giuliani had asked for 10,000 body bags. And just we didn't, nobody knew the scale of what was happening other than that it was enormous and devastating. Uh, I went back uptown then again at around 8 o'clock I think it was and vigils at that stage had started everywhere candles were lit, people were in the streets uh, people were going to blood banks, there were lines around the street, uh, people just wanted to do something, they wanted to whether it was light candles or just gather in parks there was a real feeling that people just wanted to be part of their community and eventually at about 2 o'clock that morning I went to bed having come back and you know seeing friends we all, were all trying to look after each other trying to speak to people, I I spoke to one girl, God, Gerald, and you know I'd for I hadn't forgotten it because of the, she was an Irish girl, a woman who worked and she worked on the fifty-third floor of the North Tower and she had told me that she was at work that morning and she was looking out the window. Now, I had been, you know, on windows of the world because every time people came over from Ireland, whether they were friends, colleagues, whoever it was, they all wanted to go to the Twin Towers. They wanted to go to the top. They wanted to go to the 107th floor to windows of the world and look out because it was floor to ceiling, all glass. And you got this sort of queasy, weird, vertigo feeling and people loved it. I mean, honestly, I... I'd been there once too often at that stage and I had just taken Therese, my little sister, the previous Friday because she'd been there for months. I'd be going, oh God, I, please, I don't want to go again. And then I said, look, you know, okay, you kind of got to go. So we went the Friday before the Tuesday and, you know, she was like, she didn't enjoy it at all because she's afraid of heights. And, and, you know, it was just, the whole thing was so strange. So anyway, this, this woman, and I think her name was Claire, she was working for, I think she said, the French Embassy financial services on the 53rd floor. And she told me that she'd been looking at the window. She saw the plane coming towards the building, coming towards the building. She was looking at it and she couldn't believe what she was seeing. It was like literally she could not believe her eyes. And then it hit um, the building around the 8 between, somewhere above the 85th floor. And she was in it. And they were told initially. I remember her telling me that everybody was told stay where you are, stay where you are. Then they were all mixed messages: evacuate, don't evacuate. And then at a certain point, they were told don't use the elevators, take the stairs down. And I always remember her telling me that as she was taking the stairs down, she said she saw all these firemen rushing up. And I remember her words: she said I saw those big round Irish faces, and so they were all red with the exertion and they were sweating. And she said a couple of them said to her, Go on down, your grand, your grand and one of them had said, Oh my god, how are you like, you know, you're Irish. There was a bit of a and they were running up to the you know the 70th, 80th, 90th floor to try and rescue people, and of course, so many of those firefighters never came back down again. And I remember her description of this. She, she said the big jolly faces, and she said the big, you know, and and they were. And she said she saw all the Irish names on on the badges. You know, I remember her saying to me, it was Mulroney, Mulrion, all the. And she's and she was so traumatized, and and I called her a couple of weeks later on her mobile that she gave me to see if she was still if she was okay just you know to fall and and she never answered her phone and then my phone was stolen in a totally separate i was going to washington dc it my bag was was uh, taken in in penn station about a month later and i lost her number and of course she was the building the, the the offices were no longer there and i often wondered if she was OK. And because, you know, what she experienced, I said, like seeing and feeling the plane hit the building and, and then seeing all the young firemen and the older ones as they ran up and they were trying to reassure, as she said, them as they were running down. And, you know, it it was so. And then it continued like that, Charlotte, for months. And it's so strange because for me. The day, and again, this is going to probably sound a bit strange, that I was down there many, like for most days, for the, for weeks and months to follow. And, you know, the people were there with the pictures going, have you seen this person? There were wedding photos and christening photos and, you know, husbands, mothers, sisters, brothers, fiancés who were still missing. And the final day of the, of the recovery operation was May the 30th, 2002. So it was, you know, months and months Mm -hmm. later and for me that day was the hardest day and I still remember it was the first time that I cried really because I remember being down there and all the wire fencing around the big hole that it had become. It was still covered in pictures of people who were still missing and flowers and some of them were faded and some of them were. And there were still people who were there with pictures. And there was a woman standing beside me. She was probably in her 60s. Her son had been lost and they would never found any trace of him or any of his remains. And she put her head on my shoulder and she said, I just want his body. I just want them to give me back his body. And there was no speeches or anything, but I still remember that the firemen came out and they were carrying a stretcher with an American flag on the stretcher, and which was a symbol of their fallen you know, colleagues who, who they hadn't been able to rescue either. And there were bugles playing taps, I think. And for me, that was the day that really, because... You know, it's a weird thing when you're a journalist, you're you're trying, you're not almost processing it because you're so busy trying to get information because you know you're there as a witness that you, you have a job to do. And that day that I was down there to report, I still had a job to do on May 30th. But the devastation and the heartbreak of those people who months later were still going down every day in the hope that they'd get news, in the hope and that they knew at that point that that was it, that their loved ones remains were never going to be recovered and and you know it it was such a, a harrowing like those two days were were equally harrowing i found in in different ways and then of course we had everything that happened Thereafter. Well, Well, that's
0: what we really do need to get into. And I've got I've got so many questions later in this episode. We will, of course, catch up on everything that's been happening in America this week, including California, Texas. The 11 Trump officials Biden uh, has told to resign or be dismissed. I know. I'm thinking what you're thinking I thought they were all gone apparently not to gain access to the full episode and all the Marion episodes from the past year head to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad or download the Patreon app it only takes a few clicks and then you're in you can filter and search for the episodes you want so if you only want to hear Marion or Sonia or the big Sunday interviews this is the best way to do it and tailor your experience and get access to hundreds of episodes not available anywhere else ready? Please, Russia, please. To renew America, we must revitalize our democracy.